Hey, I'm Ellen from Jacksonville, Florida. Hey, I'm Cody from Edmonton, Alberta. I'm Eric from Nashville. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. I'm Jesse Thorne. Simon Amstel thought that hosting a TV show would solve all of his problems, so he worked really hard to make that happen. And so when I was on television and still sad and lonely... There was this feeling like, what has this journey been about? What, what, what have I been doing? And so if you are giving up so much of yourself in order for this work that you are doing, which is not bringing all the satisfaction that I thought it would, then I need to be making different decisions. <laughs> it's bullseye. <laughs> This week, my interview with the delightful stand-up comic Simon Amstel. On TV, he's prodded at the powers that be. He's even caused a few walk-offs. If you can't say these things on television, you know, where can you say them? But despite the escapades, Amstel spends much of his time on stage and off looking inward at himself. His self-doubt got so deep that he went on a shamanic quest to South America to find answers. Really. Plus, Brian K. Vaughn talks about creating a deep rich new world for his comic book series, Saga. Usually, you know, when you're introduced to a comic, it's not issue number one or this fresh start. You get Amazing Spider-Man number 251 or something, and you're sort of tossed headlong into this fully formed universe. I was just so fascinated by it. Plus, Jordan Morris tells us what's up and what's down in our universe, the good old U.S. of A. All this week on Bullseye, let's go. Every week on Bullseye, we invite some of our favorite cultural critics onto the show to recommend some culture that is worth your time. And this week is no exception. We're joined by AV Club assistant TV editor Eric Adams and contributor Claire Zulke. And this time around, they are going to be offering some all-time favorites. Um, hi, Claire. Hi, Eric. How you doing? Hey, Jesse. Hey, Jesse. So, Claire, let's start with you and uh, a gem from across the pond, uh, the British television show Spaced. Yes. This is a show that was created by Simon Pegg, Nick Frost, and Jessica Stevenson and directed by Edgar Wright. And if some of those names are familiar to uh, American ears, it's probably from the world of movies. But this is sort of the, the project that brought them all together. Yeah, um, I watched it several years ago, but um, in the time since then, I've gotten more familiar with Simon Pegg's movies. And then last year, I listened to him uh, narrate his book, Nerd Do Well, where I heard him talk about the creation of space and all that went into it. And then um, I, after becoming a fan of Community, I kind of got more into TV shows that are referential to other TV shows and movies. Uh, so lately, I've been watching Spaced on Netflix, and I just enjoy, I'm enjoying it a lot more, kind of knowing the background of it. The Phantom Menace was 18 months ago, Tim. I know, Bilbo. Okay, just, it still hurts. You know, that kid wanted a Jar Jar doll. Kids like Jar Jar. Why? What about the Ewoks? Hey, they were rubbish. You don't complain about them. Yeah, but Jar Jar Binks makes the Ewoks look like Shaft. These folks uh, also work together on movies like Shaun of the Dead, and they all share, along with Spaced, this kind of theme of a, a combination of parody, homage, and sincere character relationships and more traditional comedy. Yeah, and I think it's the kind of show where even if you don't get all the references, you can still really just enjoy the characters and the situations that they're put into, and that's what makes it a good show. Eric Adams, your pick is an all-time television classic, Twin Peaks, some folks uh, who are listening right now will be old enough to remember its original network run. For those who aren't uh, or who just weren't paying attention at the time, uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about it. Uh, well, Twin Peaks is the uh, television love child, I guess, of uh, filmmaker David Lynch and uh, Mark Frost. And it's just this fantastically surreal bizarre story of this town in Washington, Twin Peaks, that starts out as a, a very sort of straightforward neo-noir mystery. And uh, as it goes on, just becomes 
this uh, amazing chronicle of this strange little pocket of Americana. Kyle MacLachlan is uh, one of the stars of Twin Peaks, Eric, and I know that his role on this show is one of your favorites. Tell me a little bit about it. Yeah, uh, the character that MacLachlan plays on Twin Peaks, uh, FBI Special Agent Dale Cooper, um, he's just got so many layers to him, and he sort of comes to Twin Peaks as this Boy Scout of the FBI, very straight-laced, but you can see there's like some twinkle in his eye the way McLaughlin plays uh, Cooper that something's just a little bit off about this guy. And he just also has all these wonderful fascinations and uh, obsessions. Like he just loves food and he talks about it so rapturously. You know, this is, excuse me, a damn fine cup of coffee. I've had, I can't tell you how many cups of coffee in my life and this, this is one of the best. Now, I'd like two eggs over hard. I know, don't tell me, it's hard on the arteries, but old habits die hard, just about as hard as I want those eggs. Bacon, super crispy, almost burned, cremated. I tend to think of Twin Peaks in the context of its time as just spectacularly revolutionary, that something this unusual could run on network television in what was essentially still... A three or four channel world. Um, but is this still something that is really relevant and enjoyable in an era when, you know, there's Mad Men on TV and uh, if you don't like Mad Men, you can watch uh, Archer on FX and there's something for everybody? Well, I mean, I think there still every television season there's a show that is drawing upon seeds that were planted by Twin Peaks, and also it's it's a show that's completely untethered by time. You know, it's uh, it it doesn't feel dated at all. And you know, my my wife and I kind of have a tradition of rewatching Twin Peaks uh, every year since we discovered it uh, three or four years ago. <laughs> that's an unusual tradition, Eric. <laughs> It's 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 a strange thing uh, to include in in a relationship like that, but uh, you know. Eric Adams recommends you check out the legendary cult television show Twin Peaks, which is available on DVD and Netflix. Claire Zolke recommends you check out the British TV show Spaced, which is available in the same venues. Eric Adams, the assistant TV editor at the AV Club, which you can find online at avclub.com. Claire Zolke, a contributor there. She also writes the Zolke blog at zolke.com for WBEZ. Thanks, Claire and Eric. Thank you. Thanks, Jesse. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. When you watch the British comedian Simon Amstel on stage, you see a man turning himself inside out. His performance is a list of sources and symptoms of existential ennui and a story about trying to solve it. It's a little like Woody Allen, which is sort of surprising because for about 10 years, Amstel made his living on television shows skewering pop music celebrities. He hosted an interview show called Pop World, and a panel show called Nevermind the Buzzcocks that made him famous in the UK, then followed them up with a sitcom about a TV host who quits his job because he's uncomfortable making fun of people and moves in with his grandma. With Simon Amstel, it's all complicated. Lucky for us, the result of all this twisting and turning is a funny, humane performer and a funny, humane performance. Amstel just returned to the U.S. to perform a few more dates of his solo show, Numb. We spoke in December. Here's Amstel on the stand-up stage, unpacking his inability to be in the moment while visiting Paris. I was in Paris recently with a new group of people, one of which was quite a sort of kooky, interesting girl. Although in hindsight, not that interesting. <laughs> I always get fooled. I was thinking, oh, she seems fascinating. Is she Simon, or does she just have short hair? <laughs> Completely fascinated, and I'm thinking, oh, I'll talk to her for the rest of my life. Bored after ten minutes. You should grow your hair and stop misleading people. (laughs) 
So she suggests at about, at about three in the morning that we all run up the Champs-Élysées to the Arc de Triomphe. And I guess telling you about that now sounds sort of exciting and fun, but at the time, I just thought, well, why would we do that? And then, and then what's the point? And then when we get there, then what will we do with our lives? And I'm sort of analysing what the point of it is, and we live that way, and it seems a long way to go. And everyone else is just not analysing, they're just running, and I'm running as well because of the peer pressure, because I'm fun. <laughs> And we're all running and running, and everyone else, I think, is just at one with the moment, at one with joy, at one with the universe. And I'm there, as I'm running, thinking, well, this will probably make a good memory. (laughs) Simon Amstel, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Hello, thank you very much for having me. (laughs) You already sound worried, Simon. Yeah, well, it's quite, well, it's weird listening to a whole introduction of yourself and then listening to a clip of yourself and then you know, in preparation for talking about yourself. I read somewhere that that it was your, like, life's ambition to appear on television, even as a small child. Yes, I was a very weird child, and uh, that's all I wanted. That was all that was important. Was it a particular kind of appearing on television? Yes, there was a program in the UK called The Big Breakfast where um, it was kind of anarchic, and you would see the crew members and it felt like anything could happen and I, it looked like the most fun you could possibly have uh, hosting a show like that and so that's just all I wanted to do. I, I want to I play this clip of the first time that you appeared on television. This is you oh, as, oh, Jesus. <laughs> as a 13-year-old on a show called Games Master. Oh, wow. Okay. Good luck, everyone. Okay, we've got to get through here. It's the Essex All-Stars in yellow. All right, okay. Okay, tell us your, your names, guys. I'm Simon. Simon? And I'm Robert. Robert? I'm Matthew. And you're Matthew. Uh, so which one's the team captain? That's me. Simon, you're the team captain. That's so right. how are your team going to fare? Fair? We are going to do absolutely brilliant. <laughs> We're going to do better than any team here. We are unstoppable. We are the Essex All-Stars. Whoa! <laughs> you were demonstrating a lot of conviction at an early age. It's so upsetting. It's so upsetting. Isn't it? Isn't it upsetting? <laughs> <laughs> I found it delightful, Simon. Oh, no. It's really... Uh, I mean, that was, that's, what I, that's what I was. I mean, I was just desperate. H- how, did you get, how did you get on that show as a 13-year-old? A guy actually came to our school and, uh, from the production company and just needed young people, and so I ended up auditioning. I knew I wasn't very good at playing the games, but what I felt was the guy who came to our school said that they would base their decisions on who they picked on uh, gameplay ability and personality. And I thought, I will, I'll have to have a personality then. And so <laughs> I sort of... Uh, and yeah, I guess I just thought... I also, you know, I used to go to a Saturday morning stage school where uh, the advice was just to be loud. <laughs> that was the... <laughs> and so I, so I did that. So I was just loud and annoying because I thought, then you are memorable. Can, can you tell me a little bit about what Pop World was? This is a show that you started hosting as a, as a teenager, right? I was, no, I was 21. I started hosting stuff when I was 18, but this show, I was 21. And, uh, uh, God, what do you want to know about it? How should I describe what, it? What kind of thing was it? Because I have never, I've never seen it, and I'm curious. If you imagine, I'm trying to think what the... So this is not really an equivalent, but you know TRL? That yeah, sure. On MTV. Is it still MTV? Yeah. Okay, so imagine that, but good. <laughs> <laughs> and when I say good, that's kind of... That's mean. What I mean is, uh, uh, imagine the presenters not being reverential. Imagine them not really caring about the music. Imagine their their only interest being in trying to burst the bubble of the brand that was trying to be sold. We just did silly things on it. We sort of interviewed people with megaphones, you know, across a car park rather than sitting down with them and, you know, (laughs) treating them with the respect that they felt they deserved. Was that important to you, that idea of of popping bubbles? Yeah, because it felt like everyone else just treated celebrity with enormous respect. And it felt like... uh, it didn't. It didn't. It didn't feel real. It felt boring. If I, I and I wanted, it was that we were only interested in truth. We were just searching for the truth, Jesse. <laughs> we didn't want to upset anyone. Was it weird for you when you started doing stand up and you were known for hosting this, you know, 
television program for teenage uh, LMFAO enthusiasts or whatever the uh, 10 years ago equivalent of that is? Uh, yeah, that was it was quite tricky. So I started doing my first stand up gig was when I was 14, when I was that weird child. And then I uh, did a few uh, weird gigs until I was about 18 and then retired because I got this hosting job. And I thought, well, it's, there's no need to do any of this stand-up comedy anymore. And then at 21, I felt the urge to return. Uh, I, so I came out of retirement and then it was quite odd because I was, I was half, half, maybe half or a third of the people in each audience would have an idea of who I was a bit. And it wasn't really who I was in terms of stand-up so it was quite that was quite tricky and also I was still finding my own voice so I didn't know who I was the whole thing was very difficult for about five years and then I kind of figured out how to do it a bit when you started to find your voice what was it it was sad (laughs) it turned out (laughs) I was very sad (laughs) um the uh I think my clown is this sort of curious uh, student kind of guy. I'm sort of... I think I work quite well when there's a question mark at the end of a sentence rather than... Uh, like, I'm not good if there's an exclamation mark at the end. I'll, I'll, I will not be funny with an exclamation mark. I learned that from writing the sitcom, that my character, uh, as opposed to the other characters who would make uh, bold, shocking statements... I was much funnier if I was asking a question that was a bit off for some reason. Uh, but these things can't be analysed too much, Jesse Thorne, otherwise, we, you know, they die. My guest on Bullseye is the comedian Simon Amstel. He was known for cutting celebrity guests down to size while hosting the BBC game show Nevermind the Buzzcocks. His stand-up comedy is still sharp and probing, but now he takes himself to task. We spoke last year when he premiered his stand-up show, Numb Stateside. Amstel just returned to the U.S. for another limited run of that show. I was um, in the U.K. not that long ago and just flipping through the TV channels. And I'm watching this television program that's really quite funny, but I can't figure out why it's hosted by Alice Cooper. Oh, yes. And um, it's this show called Nevermind the Buzzcocks. And after I went to see your stand-up show, I looked you up on the Internet, and I found out that until it was hosted by... A, apparently a rotating group of Alice Cooper-like people. <laughs> um, it, was, it was hosted by you. And, and I want to play a clip of you hosting this show. This is a pop music panel show, uh, sort of a game show where jokes are the most important thing, a very popular format in the UK. Um, this is you uh, interviewing one of the contestants slash guests, Jermaine Jackson. How many children have you personally got, Jermaine Jackson? Seven. Now, I read a thing recently. Tell me if this is correct or incorrect. Yes, it is. Go ahead. You had two children with your second wife. They are called Jafar and Your Majesty. Your second wife had previously had two children with your brother Randy. That's true. Was that a bit awkward? <laughs> if, if you call it that, yes. If I was one of your kids, let's say I was Your Majesty, yes. and that would... That would be fun for me. Um, my half-brothers are also my cousins, which is fine. <laughs> what about Michael? Has he ever done anything weird? <laughs> I mean, that's really funny, Simon. Um, but that was before Michael died, by the way. Okay, that's, that's good. Um, it, that's, it, it's also, I mean, it's, it's pretty brutal. Well, go on, in what way? Why? Well, because poor Jermaine Jackson it seems like a sweet guy to me. Mm, he was very sweet. Um, it, 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 certainly it's ridiculous that he named one of his children Your Majesty. <laughs> I mean, that is, I mean that, is on, that is absolutely ridiculous. I don't think anyone could argue with that. But, you know, uh, you, you, you put him through it. I suppose, I mean, I... I just read that stuff about him, and so that popped out as interesting that that he married somebody that his brother had already married. Is that what happened? (laughs) He married his brother's ex-wife, I think. Right, so that happened in the world, so that's interesting. And 
I want, and I genuinely want to know in that moment, as well as wanting the audience to laugh and have a lovely time, I genuinely want to know if it was awkward, I suppose. I genuinely want to know how everyone feels and how, what was there a discussion about that? And, and you know, I'm, I am poking around the areas of life that I find quite interesting. So to me, it's like a great opportunity. If, if, you, can't, if you can't say these things on television, you know, where can you say them? Did you find it difficult to ask those kinds of questions? Um, you'd have to time it quite well. You'd have to, you'd have to find the right opening. But once, once you were in, I found it quite difficult to not ask them. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I feel like if, if I was talking to Jermaine Jackson... You have to remember also, though, we're sat there behind these, you know, shiny desks. You know, we're on a TV show. It's all being filmed. And uh, it's a show. We're making a show. And to me, they're not there just as people. They are there with their brands, their haircuts, their clothes, their back catalogue, their biog. There's a whole load of stuff there to be deconstructed. I'm not just there with a person in a room it's it's it you know there's a lot of there's a lot of baggage there's a lot of stuff to have fun with it's it's but i realized in the end they were human beings and maybe i shouldn't have been doing it (laughs) (laughs) when you i mean you had a you had a few sort of famous incidents um with uh frankly people who are only celebrities in the uk and so i can't play the clips because it wouldn't make any sense to anyone mm-hmm. but um you had a few you had a few incidents did you feel like did you feel like there was this burden on you that all of a sudden you were the guy that causes incidents and if you weren't like deflating people then you weren't doing your job well that's why i left so i only did it for 3 seasons and then i felt like what at first was a surprising, shocking thing to be happening on a show where really we should just be, you know, enjoying pop music. Suddenly it was the expectation that I was the guy who said naughty things to people. And it would have looked eventually like bullying rather than a guy in the middle of a show who didn't really know what he was doing, which I was at first. So I I left. That was it. After a break, Simon Amstel tells the story of his shamanic quest to South America. It's Bullseye. For MaximumFun.org and NPR. Bullseye is supported in part by IFC, with Marin, a scripted comedy created, produced, and starring comedian Mark Marin about his relationships and WTF podcast. Starts this Friday with guest star Dave Foley at 10, 9 central on IFC. Hi, everybody. This is Justin McElroy, and in the rich fiction we just created, the hosts of this podcast have gone for a little pee break. Hi, I'm Travis McElroy. Quick, while they're not looking, slip our comedy in. I'm Griffin McElroy, the baby brother, and stop, I'm the police. What are we doing? This is My Brother, My Brother and Me, where we take questions and turn them into wisdom and make fun of you. We make fun with you? We make fun with you because English is our second language. Well, now it's getting racist. (laughs) We have... We literally had 25 seconds, and we did racist with it. So wait till you see what we can do with a whole hour on My Brother, My Brother, and Me. We're brothers. We're experts. And we're sorry. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the comedian Simon Amstel. His stand-up show, Numb, focuses on his vulnerability and tendency toward introspection. We spoke last December when he performed the show for the first time in the U.S. Amstel's just returned to the West Coast to perform a few more dates. You made this, this sitcom, which uh, I watched a, a couple episodes of, it, and is very funny. Oh, thank you. Um, and, and in this sitcom, you play uh, essentially a, a riff on yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe you could describe your character on the show and and compare that character to you in real life. Well, so uh, it came from. There's a few things. How do we begin? Okay, well, let's start with me. So each, so when I left that show, and the, the show that I left before, I left it with the same feeling like there must be... Like all I wanted as a child was to be on television, and then once that had been achieved, and I felt that it would solve all my problems, that I could never be sad or lonely if I was on television. And so when I was on television and still sad and lonely... There was this feeling like, what has this journey been about? What 
what am, what have I been doing? It's been really hard work each week on these shows to sort of make them funny and make them surprising. It's such it takes so much out of you, and it's all encompassing, and there's no time for anything else. And so, if you are giving up so much of yourself in order for this um, work that you are doing, which is not bringing all the satisfaction that I thought it would, then I need to be making different decisions. And so, and because this character, who's essentially me, is quite extreme, uh, there was a feeling like I just have to quit this and ultimately find a cave in India where I can just sit and meditate. And that's that will bring me contentment. Rather than all this seeking validation and approval and love, I, I just need to find it internally, probably in India or Thailand. Just I just need to be on my own in a cave. And uh, in the sitcom, it's that character in contrast to the family who love him being on television. It's their whole world, especially the mother. It's everything. It's everything that he's on television. And so when he comes in in the first episode and says, I'm going to quit, it's, uh, you know, it's, what, it, it's, it's an outrageous idea. I think it's interesting to me, um, your show that I saw live here in Los Angeles recently, Numb, is, I, I mean, I, I said it's about existential ennui, and, and it is, but it, it's really about connecting with people and the world around you in an actual way. And, um, you know, it's interesting to me that you, you chose as a career, you know, starting from when you were very young, this performance of connection, which is, you know, doing a funny interview. I mean, there's no, you know, you are performing, having a connection with another person. Yeah. Um, performing, performing is the word. So I really learned how to do that very well. I learned how to interview a person in front of a camera and didn't really, because that, that took up my whole life. That show was like every week of the year, that first pop show that I did. And I just spent my life doing that and didn't really learn how to have actual conversations with people <laughs> until recently. <laughs> I mean, that's, uh, I, it's, it's nice that you're laughing about that. It's very sad. <laughs> I know. I know. Well, if you don't laugh, you cry, right? <laughs> I want to ask you something that I, I wondered about. And um, yeah, it's entirely possible I'm off base, but was was part of your discomfort with your i mean look all adolescents are uncomfortable with themselves um but p- was part of your trying to find a relationship to others and especially peers uh, about the fact that that you were gay well that yeah that must come into it and just doesn't feel like it's relevant to my life now but certainly when i was 13 and had to I felt I had to keep that a secret until I was 21. Certainly, that comes into this feeling of disconnection that I talk about because while other people are, you know, learning how to kiss people for the first time, I'm pretending I don't want to kiss anyone. Yeah, another thing that I thought was really interesting that, that came up in your show was that you are, for all practical purposes, a, a teetotaler. Yes. And... um that's that's mainly the problem, I think. I think if I just drank more, everything would be fine. <laughs> that's what I was going to say. I mean, I think I I I will say that I I also I also don't drink, but I just think that a lot of teenagers and young adults who are really uncomfortable in social situations, which is to say, almost all of them, uh, just drink. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I used to when I was eighteen. I did I did drink, yeah, for for a long time in terrible clubs for years. And it didn't make it any better. Those terrible clubs stayed terrible. Why did you stop? I really... I uh, I read a book called Taming the Monkey Mind about Buddhism. And uh, one of the things was that uh, Buddhists tend to not drink and they don't eat meat. And the meat was quite easy to give up. And then I really wanted to give up alcohol as well. Because I... Uh, why did I want to do that? <laughs> I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> why was that? I think I just liked this book, and I liked the... Oh, yeah. I was on a plane, maybe at the same time as reading this Taming the Monkey Mind book, 
and I saw a monk meditating a few seats away from me, and he looked to be the most calm, content human being I'd ever seen, and I, I thought, I want whatever he is having. And so I thought, let's give up alcohol, see how that goes. But I couldn't do it because I was still single, and I was at an age where you needed to go out and dance and talk to people, and that was really not going to happen if I wasn't drunk, and so I had to drink. And then I ended up in a relationship for about two years, and I thought, oh, I can give up alcohol now. This is great. And so I did, and that all worked out. And then when that relationship ended, I thought, oh, no, I'm going to have to drink again. And I tried it and had such a terrible hangover. I thought, oh, my goodness, this is horrific. This is poison. I can't do this anymore. And so that was that, so now I don't drink. My guest on Bullseye is the comedian Simon Amstel, who spoke last year. Do you find that when you talk to people in real life, and I saw you doing this quite graciously um, after your show the other night here in Los Angeles, uh, to what looked like some really serious fans. Um, do you find it a burden or a relief that you're going into a lot of social interactions with people who are already knowledgeable about your, your public persona? It's a relief because um, it's like that thing I say in the show about uh, some people, when I meet new people, and if they don't realize I'm that I'm very funny, then you know they they look a bit uh, <laughs> upset because of the things I say sometimes are a bit peculiar or aggressive, and then I have to reassure them. Oh no, don't worry, I'm professionally funny. It's that thing of if you if 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 your uh, personality has already been established, like like it's like don't worry, this is just this is I'm this is what I'm supposed to be like. Don't you know this is fine. This is absolutely fine. Otherwise. People think well, this guy is just an awful human being. We have to walk away from him. But if the, uh, you know, uh, fame, if you are a famous person, then it means that um, it's been established that who you are is a good thing. And so people aren't as concerned. People are, oh, this, oh, he, he's so great, this this weird, awkward guy. That, well, we should, we should really be friends with him rather than, oh, this is... I'm like, this is awful. Is there anyone else we can talk to? Your um, stand-up is very internally driven. And part of what the story is about, both in your show Do Nothing and in your current stage show Numb, is essentially a, a search within yourself and and a search for outside means of, of correcting the problems that you perceive in yourself. And I want to play a clip from uh, your special Do Nothing. Um, in this clip, you are, uh, you're basically looking for, for physical sources of, of your emotional pain. And I feel special in some way if I feel broken. If I'm broken, there's a journey to be healed. There's a journey to be fixed. I feel like I'm an interesting, unique human being in the meaninglessness of it all. I feel unique. I feel special. I like that I've got an osteopath appointment once a month where I go because I've got bad posture. Something happened in my past and I guess this man is healing me each month, bringing me some sort of neutral state, some pure neutral state. And I asked him, because he's quite a sensitive, sweet man, why, why did I end up with bad posture? Is it because when I was a kid I was quite shy? I ended up trying to make myself invisible from the other children, end up all hunched over and scared. And even though what I do now is extrovert, still inside, I'm the same scared, crying child. I said, what's wrong with me? Why would that happen to me? What's wrong with me? And he said, you have very tight hamstrings. <laughs> Yeah, but isn't it more that I'm a genius recluse? Isn't that the... <laughs> no, the tendons behind your knees are quite restricted. Yeah, but isn't that just the physical manifestation of a tortured soul? No, it's your legs. <laughs> your show is so much about these sort of challenges you put before yourself in an effort to um, address these shortcomings that you see. One of them is a, a trip to South America. Ah, uh, yes. I was to, wondering if this may come up. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I think this is your Your Majesty. Uh, <laughs> oh wow! Okay, go at, on. Go at, on. Well, I read. You know, when I when I saw in your show that you had gone on a shamanic quest to South America, I felt that was an interesting subject to explore. Yeah. Um, how do you even? 
Are, did you just type shamanic quests into Google? <laughs> shamanic quest sounds so insane. <laughs> uh, a friend, an old school friend of mine, um, visited a shaman in Peru, and he drank this plant medicine uh, that the indigenous people have used for thousands of years to heal themselves. And he had the most incredible experience. He felt healed, and he looked so joyful when he told. This story, he looked like a, like a twelve year old kid, and I, I again like when I saw the monk on the plane, I thought that's I want some of that. That's what I need. I need that healing, and so I went, and that was that. No, hold on, that sorry, wasn't that bad. was that. I sounded like I was trying to close it off there. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, that wasn't that, and so, I will now continue. Well, <laughs> did you did you just what do you do? Do you do you like get off the the plane in in Lima? And just say, take me to your shaman. <laughs> the shame. <laughs> yeah, I know it sounds nuts, but um, it really it, it helped. I don't know what to say to you. I mean, it, I didn't know if I'd be able to talk about it in stand up because I, because I didn't want to make like fun of it, and I don't think I do. I think I do honor the experience, and I think I make fun of sort of myself and my personality within what was a very profound experience, the contrast between my, myself as a sort of physical human and the, gosh, the, I don't know what even to, how to describe it with language, but the non-physical experience that I had. And I know it sounds a bit crazy, and I think it's probably, uh, you know, I talk, I've I found a way to talk about it in stand-up, and I haven't really found a way to talk about it in any other way that doesn't just <laughs> sound like a bit of an odd thing to have done. It was odd. It wasn't um, what happened wasn't rational. What happened can't really be explained, but it really helped. And if it's the sort of thing that uh, calls to you, and I, I really, uh, I really felt that I, I kept hearing about it. I kept hearing, and they they say that it's a thing that calls to you. And uh, but I told this to someone, and he said, "Yeah, I keep hearing the word skiing." <laughs> so, <laughs> but you know, it was. Um, it was pretty nuts, but I think the world is pretty nuts. And I think the things that are considered normal in our culture are pretty nuts. And so to do something that's a bit odd, to me, is sometimes the most rational thing you can do. There you go. What about that? That wasn't bad, right? As a sentence. Yeah, I mean... Go on. What else do you want? What I else do you know, want from me? I don't know if I'm buying it. Okay, but... what, do, what don't you buy about it? And I'll try to... Uh... But it's not a thing that... It's okay to not... It's, I think it's not for everyone as well. I got that from the experience that it really isn't for anyone. Uh, sorry. It really isn't for everyone. It's a really extreme thing to do. And I think it's for some people to do and to then use use what they gain from that experience to then, um, I don't know, share their joy or something with the people who, who haven't gone. <laughs> how, did you, how did you feel different after you had gone through this, this process of, you know, sitting in a circle with a bunch of people and drinking this medicine and throwing up and having some visions and that kind of thing uh i felt healed i felt genuinely like i'd been um reset is probably quite a good word i think what happens is we're born and then things happen to us and we make decisions unconscious decisions about what we should do now in order to protect ourselves from things that could happen like that again and so you end up with a load of defense mechanisms, personality traits, and you are, they then, which uh, uh, for a while, they were things that were really helping you and protecting you. They then become their own kind of prison. And then you're sort of stuck. And in this experience of being in this rainforest, drinking this medicine, you kind of overcome fear because horrific traumatic things happen. Stuff from the past comes up and you realize some of it wasn't, your fault or you realize that your perception of it at the time was not accurate things like that and so you you eventually realize that everything's fine really and after that last ceremony there were four ceremonies and i just lied back on my bed and i said healing complete well simon i i sure appreciate you taking the time to be on bullseye it was really a pleasure to have you on the show was it interesting or funny enough Yes, absolutely. Okay, but you'll do an edit to make it even better, will you? Nick, my engineer, is shaking his head no. I think he's just going to leave the whole thing wrong. Oh my God, yeah, now he's this. nodding yes. Phew, thank goodness. We're actually... Okay. Nick, is it cool if we do one of those edits that makes it sound worse? 
Okay, he says yes. We're going to make you sound bad with the edit. That's what they do with most television, I've noticed. That's what they do. Simon Amstel's most recent stand-up special is called Do Nothing. He's also been performing his stage show, Numb, in the United States lately. Simon, thanks again. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. As a modern man or woman, you need to know what's current, what's hip, what's hot. And in order to avoid ridicule, it's imperative that you stay away from what isn't current, what isn't hip, what's not. That's why correspondent Jordan Morris is here with his list of expertly ranked stuff. It's Jordan Ranks America. At number five this month, it's Your High School Girlfriend. You haven't talked in years, but from the looks of Facebook, she's having a pretty good time. I bet she'd be really impressed by how good you've gotten at lovemaking. Debuting at a strong number four, it's The Post Office. Sure, with email, the post office is becoming increasingly irrelevant. But check out that sweet rack of greeting cards. Holding strong at number three, it's your difficult cousin. This college sophomore will pep up Christmas dinner by demanding a vegan meal and yelling at your dad for not driving a hybrid. Thanks, difficult cousin. You make everything more yelly. Climbing fast at number two, it's Predators. Did you know they made a new sequel to the 1987 sci-fi classic Predator a few years ago? And it was actually pretty good? Catch it on cable today so we've got something to talk about the next time we're grabbing beers. Reigning benevolently at the top spot, it's Scrabble. Play this board game classic with friends to tell who in your group of friends is a real jerk when it comes to board games. From the bottom to the top, I'm Jordan Morris. Jordan Morris is the co-host of the podcast Jordan Jesse Go, along with me, Jesse. You can find episodes of that show on our website, MaximumFun.org. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Bullseye is supported in part by IFC, with Marin, a scripted comedy created, produced, and starring comedian Mark Marin about his relationships and WTF podcast. Starts this Friday with guest star Dave Foley at 10, 9 central on IFC. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you think comic books are the home of broad characters and even broader allegories, Brian K. Vaughan begs to differ. He's built his career writing knowable human characters into extraordinary situations. His comics are as funny and intimate as they are exciting and inventive. His signature story is probably Why the Last Man, the story of a young man and his monkey who live in a contemporary America where an unknown plague has killed every single male but him. His comic Ex Machina was about a superhero who becomes mayor of New York in the wake of September 11th. His Marvel book The Runaways was about a group of super teens who realize their parents are supervillains and are forced to fight them. After a few years in Hollywood working on Lost, among other projects, Vaughn's back in the comic game with a series called Saga. It's a domestic drama about a couple that is literally star-crossed. Their alien races are in the midst of a war that's consuming the entire galaxy. In the very first panels, they have a child, and the comics tell the story of their efforts to protect her. Brian K. Vaughan and I spoke last year. Oh, Brian K. Vaughan, it's great to have you on Bullseye. Thank you so much. Great to be here. Could you describe those that that first panel of Saga? And you you can use you can use the language. Oh, I can't. We'll, Good. we'll bleep out the language. Great. Well, yeah. Saga opens with uh, we just see a woman uh, drenched in sweat, and uh, the first lines of the book are, uh, "Am I shitting? It feels like I'm shitting." <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the sort of uh, narrator is saying, uh, this is how ideas are born. I-, I won't say whether or not that moment was inspired by my own first child and experience in the delivery room. 
But I did think as I was having a, a kid and there's sort of uh, all of this stuff coming out from everywhere that this is really uh, having a child is a lot like, you know, creating an idea. So th this is what Saga is about, is about the, the act of creation, whether you're making a baby or a work of art and how difficult it is to bring something new into the universe. Did you always love comic books? Oh, yeah. There was a guy named Al, still is a guy named Al, who owns his store called Al's Comics in San Francisco. And I remember, even as, I mean, I would read comic books. I still probably have in my mom's closet somewhere several bo big boxes full of comics. But it still seemed like an impenetrable, crazy world to me. I Because I, I know most people do. That usually, you know, when you're introduced to a comic, it's not issue number one or this fresh start. You get... Amazing Spider-Man number 251 or something, and you're sort of tossed headlong into this fully formed universe. And a lot of people find it very off-putting. And I guess I was just so fascinated by it, and I just wanted to know all of the history that had come before and everything that would happen afterwards. Uh, it was really appealing to me, but I'm weird. The, the, first, uh, the first Marvel comic that you wrote uh, or that you got exclusive credit for was uh, this guy named... Uh, is, was it Carl Kazar? I believe you're looking for it, Jesse. <laughs> sort of a bargain basement Tarzan knockoff. Kazar, yes, of the Savage Land. Okay, so what can you bring to a story about Kazar of the Savage Land? A guy who, as a as a kid, I read many a Marvel comic sure. book. When I saw that name, I had to type <laughs> it into Google to see what the hell it was. Yeah. What could I bring to it? it was not very much. But uh, I remember I met Neil Gaiman, who's the author who does uh, Sandman. Uh, That's probably what he's best known for. But when I was just starting to break in or trying to break into comics, I met him and I asked, what advice do you have for young creators? And he said, well, get published as quickly as you can, because nothing will make you a better writer faster than knowing that absolute strangers are reading your total garbage and uh, that was the benefit of Kazar's, just sort of getting something out there and having the opportunity. You know, because before that, I sort of had the safety of you share your scripts with your friends or in a classroom or something. It's very safe. But I just sort of needed to get published and get something out there and just be horrified. And at first, you know, it's the thrill of seeing your name on a Marvel comic is exciting. But then you sort of read it months after you had written it, and I just wanted to knock it out of people's hands at the comic book store and be like, no, it's no good, please. I can't imagine what a challenge it must be to write for a character, characters like, say, the X-Men. Um, because not only because of the thing that you've described, which is someone else created it, but you are servicing this world of established things and expectations and then trying to find something that you can introduce that will make the whole thing interesting. Yeah, and I did find early on I preferred working on the weird characters like Kazar over Spider-Man and the X-Men and the characters that I love because I felt I don't have as much to add. I'm never going to write a better Spider-Man story than Stan Lee, but give me some sort of forgotten character that no one else wants to write that their people aren't really paying attention to, and that's where I was happiest. Um, one of the first big characters that you created, or a a group of the first big characters that you created, was was this group called the Runaways. Um, it, it's funny to me that you have this new comic called Saga that is about parenting. You know, it, it is about the sort of primal urge to protect and care for your children is the driving force of this comic. And Runaways was about a bunch of teens trying to kill their parents. That's right. Yeah, I was always fascinated by, it seems like comic book characters, heroes, the only good parent is a dead parent. Like, you know, Bruce Wayne's parents are dead and Peter Parker's parents are dead and Superman's real parents are dead. And I always wondered if those parents had stayed alive would Batman, instead of mourning these people at the cemetery, would he just be a brat who's yelling at them all the time and complaining about how awful they are? And so I sort of wanted to do, yeah, sort of a subversive Marvel book that said, yeah, what if you found out that your parents were actually supervillains? What would you do? 
and yeah, I think it was, I, I was still relatively young. I was probably 19 or 20 when I started that. And I'm sure angry about my parents and the world. And yeah, so Saga is sort of comeuppance for that, where now instead of writing parents as the villain, I am now the sellout old man writing about parents being the good guys. I mean, a lot of these conflicts, I mean, it's like the conflicts in like Grimm's fairy tales or something like that. There's a plenty of orphans yeah. and people fighting against mostly step parents in Grimm's fairy tales. But they're these kind of, uh, they're very, they're very specifically adolescent problems. And a lot of superhero characters are built to deal with very specifically adolescent problems. Sure. I mean, that was always the original target audience of these comic books. But, you know, it's not true anymore. You know, when I started reading comics, the average age was probably much younger than it is. And, you know, there are people from all walks of life reading comics now. And I really I felt- mean, in those original adolescent stories, I mean, the the stories that Stan Lee wrote for uh, 13-year-old boys in the early 1960s, that's the same story as the movie that makes a billion dollars in 2012. And that's, you know, when I say I love combining the mundane and the fantastic, that's really the genius of Stanley. That he was, I think that's why those stories are so timeless, is that it wasn't just about cool powers or cool costumes, but Peter Parker was really, you know, a damaged adolescent with allergies, you know, it was something you could really relate to, which was not true of previous superhero characters where like Batman and Superman who felt more like your dad, you know, they would have teenage sidekicks. Spider-Man was really this new thing where it was suddenly we, the damaged kids reading the comics, were the hero. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Brian K. Vaughn, is well known as one of the world's great comic book writers. His works include the beloved Why the Last Man and Ex Machina. His new comic, a beautiful space opera about parenting, is called Saga. One of the interesting things about uh, Saga to me is that in contrast to writing most superhero comics, where they live in the world of that superhero comic. And that is one of the most important elements, especially the way that superhero comics work these days, where um, the companies that make them are financially driven by huge crossover things that tie together all the storylines from all the different stuff. And it's basically a way of, you know... Uh, servicing people who are emotionally connected to the idea of completism. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know what I mean? People who are really into uh, something averses. Um, and and in Saga, you get to play that game yourself where every little thing that happens, you can see it create, you can see it sort of sp- tesserating in people's minds and becoming its own part of the world. Sure. I mean, it was the magic of seeing Star Wars, you know, uh, when I was young is that, you know, you're telling a self-contained story, but every tiny nook and cranny of the universe felt like it could be its own story that you would want to follow. I just, I really admired that world building so much. The conflict in Saga is all-encompassing. Maybe you could describe what the sure. war is in the book. Yeah, well, it's hard to describe because the the sort of people involved in it don't even remember what started the war. But there's something going on between the largest planet in the galaxy and its only moon, the sort of magical moon. And the moon has uh, people with horns and they practice magic. And this big planet has people with wings and they're sort of more of a technological world. And all we know is that they despise each other and have despised each other for generations. And their war has sort of spilled out beyond these two worlds into sort of proxy wars that have overtaken the whole universe. And our protagonists are two characters who fall in love despite their differences and decide, you know what, maybe this war is just complete nonsense. And I didn't want to do a story about this is not a plucky rebellion who's going to bring down some empire. These people are not vital to this war. They're just sort of um, conscientious objectors who have decided, let's get out of this nonsense. The interesting thing to me about this war is that it it is, as you said, fought via proxy. And in fact, it is bounded one of the odd things about the structure of this war is that the two sides have agreed to contain it within specific places in order to prevent their own annihilation. But 
as it turns out, sort of hasten the annihilation of these other places. Which is, uh, I think, probably something that's really going on in the world right now. And it's sort of hard to talk about when you come at it sort of dead on. And, uh, yeah, I think it's much easier to sort of talk about the war on terror or our complicated relationship with Saudi Arabia when you mix in dragons and ray guns. (laughs) At least for me, that's what I found. So one of the characters, basically this is a sort of classic story of um, these parents have this child who is interspecies or interracial or whatever. I don't know what it counts if it's two groups of aliens. Um, But this child is being pursued by all sides, including the father's armies, the mother's armies, uh, bounty hunters, and this third set of people who look like they're from a, like a residence video. <laughs> they're robot people with television heads. Um, in fact, the one who in particular who's coming after them is named Prince Robot the Fourth. That's right. Um, can you tell me about this guy dresses like the if he if I was going to describe what he reminds me of, it would probably be like those. Um, uh, those Middle Eastern princes that compete in dressage competitions <laughs> in the Olympics or play international polo or something like that? Yeah, that's, uh, that sounds about right. But he has a giant TV for a head. Yes, but with a TV for a head. Yeah, I knew, you know, I uh, I love science fiction, but I, I wanted to do a very accessible story that even though it's so bizarre and far out that it was really grounded in reality and you would be able to sort of very quickly understand this story. So I just wanted real simple iconography. So like I said, if we have one side, uh, they have horns. They could be all different kinds of horns, antlers, devil horns, whatever. And the other side has wings, could be insect wings or whatever. And then I knew we wanted to have our robots. And I guess perhaps it's coming from working in television, but I just like the idea that anytime you would meet a robot, they have sort of a different kind of television for a head is just a visual shorthand, but also there's just something terrifying about looking into that blank screen, I suppose. So, um, yeah, I also wanted to write about robots sort of as a ruling class. Since we only ever see sort of robots as slaves or indentured servants, I thought in our world it would be interesting if we sort of flip that and our, our robots are, like I say, high-ranking officials in this world. And, like, fancy, too. Oh, they're fancy, yes. Vaguely British, too. But, uh, yeah, you know, in the first issue uh, of Saga, we have sort of graphic robot sex and uh, just hideous acts of violence. But really the only complaints that I heard were at one point uh, a character's talking about his phone auto-updating an app or someone is going to an ATM. And a lot of readers are are really wildly alarmed by that, that there's some rule that you can't in science fiction and fantasy, you can have things like kings and princes or characters can go to bars, but you can't have something feel like it's too much from our world. But I love that. I like uh, sort of pressing readers' buttons, and I like pulling people out of stories. That I always hear people say, oh, I hated that moment. It took me out of the story. But I like periodically to remind you that well, you were reading a story and think about sort of how this is, you know, uh, compares to our world. You also seem really committed to setting up these big, complicated systems and then just making that the background of the work that you're doing. I mean, my favorite war movie is Casablanca. That feels like what I hope to do with Saga is something in that vein in that the war is vitally important to the story. We know that it's going on in the background, and yet this is still, you know, a, a romance, that what's in the foreground is a very intimate story between two people. And I think there's a reason that so many great sweeping love stories are set during wars because there's something you know is for all the you know truth about war being hell it's also kind of sexy because the stakes are so unimaginably high you know people are going to lose their lives what you're fighting for is vitally important Uh, i like sort of setting that sort of small intimate romance against that epic story so why not just make you know, why not just make something small? What's what's wrong with uh, what's wrong with making a you know a, a Dan Klaus comic or something like that about uh, or Adrian Tomina comic about you know two people that meet in a coffee shop? I guess because I'm not those guys, and they're so terrific at what they do. 
And I have never sort of been able to talk about my life head on, I guess. It's, uh, I, I guess I've always found more truth talking about the world through sort of that lens of fiction, holding up that funhouse mirror to our universe. I don't know. Also, I just like ray guns and rocket ships, so man, <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I like that stuff. It makes it way more interesting. I mean, I could just tell you anecdotes about losing diaper bags or my kids spitting up on me, but I'd much rather weave that into a tapestry of uh, sexy robots and uh, space helicopters. Well, Brian, I sure appreciate you taking the time to be on Bullseye. It was great to talk to you. It was an honor. Thanks, Jesse. Brian K. Vaughn. The second collected volume of his series, Saga, is due out in July. Every week on Bullseye, we close the show with a recommendation from our host, who is me. It's the outshot. There's a whole world of transracial, transgenre punk rock cover records out there. Remember Alien Ant Farm? Basically, they're just kitsch. Embarrassing. One of them isn't, though. It's an album by the Dirt Bombs called Ultra Glide in Black. Why does it work? Maybe it's because the Dirt Bombs are themselves a mixed-race group and their lead singer, Mick Collins, is black. Maybe they just had enough of that R&B garage in their punk already to overdrive the soul songs into rock jams. The point is that Ultra Glide in Black somehow manages to be a punk rock record and a soul record. Listen to the band tear into this Curtis Mayfield song. They turn an original that was sort of wistful into something much, much fiercer. Here's the thing. There's a lot of love in R&B, a lot of soul-searching, some great parties, not all that much rage. Punk rock, though. Punk rock's great at rage. Mick Collins isn't a soul singer, but he's got the presence to back up some heavy songs. And when the band finds a soul record that has the guts of a punk record, the album soars. Hey! I know it feels to expect to get a best shape, but they won't let you forget that you're the underdog and it got to be twice as good. Yeah, yeah. Even if you never rise, they get uptight if you get too bright, because you might be thinking too much again. Yeah, yeah. If you don't recognize that song, it's Sly and the Family Stone's first single, Underdog, from 1967. Sly was an idealist, and he was no stranger to the politics of a mixed-race band. He wanted a happy, integrated world. But like the Dirt Bombs, he wasn't afraid of anger. He wasn't afraid to rage a little. And on Ultra Glide in Black, it's thrilling to hear Mick Collins and company throw some rock and roll passion into the soul stew. That's my outshot. I know how it feels to get demoted when it comes time to get promoted. Because you might be moving up too fast. Yeah, yeah. If you ever love somebody of a different set, and the set wouldn't let you forget that it just don't go like that. Yeah, yeah. I know it feels people to stop, turn around and stand, signify a little bit, and low rave me, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I don't mind. Underdog. Underdog. I'm the underdog. Hey! I'm the Go along with people you don't even know. So-
simply because there happens to be a whole lot more than yeah. That's it for this week's Bullseye. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Julia Smith. Our senior producer is Nick White. Our intern is Thomas Madison. Our interstitial music is provided to us by Dan Wally. Our theme music is Huddle Formation by The Go Team. Thanks to The Go Team and their label Memphis Industries for letting us use it. You can find this show and all past Bullseye shows for free at MaximumFun.org. You can also visit us on Twitter, at Bullseye, on Facebook and SoundCloud, where you can share segments with your friends. I guess that's about it. And remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye is supported in part by IFC, with Marin, a scripted comedy created, produced, and starring comedian Mark Marin about his relationships and WTF podcast. Starts this Friday with guest star Dave Foley, at 10, 9 central on IFC. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.